This is Polyoptics. Shining a light on the theater of politics. And now, from New York, here's Josh King. Thanks for joining us as we pull back the curtain on the events that shape American politics and drive the images and headlines. Polyoptics, the only show of its kind on the air today, and it's only on POTUS. This week, Kathy Roth Decay and Evan Thomas. Kathy, like me, cut her teeth doing advance work, but she's gone on to much greater things. The author of books and now the CEO of Blue Star Families, a national network of military families from all ranks and services. And yet, at this holiday time, she might be most proud of her primary role as a Marine Corps wife, a position of domestic authority that's taken her around the world many times over, watching the home front and duty that stands alongside what our soldiers in uniform do every day on the front lines. Then, it's Ike's Bluff. Dwight Eisenhower served from 1953 to 1961, a period of American prosperity, but also the dark days of the Cold War. The Pentagon is ready for battle. The CIA is flexing its muscle. And in the Oval Office, the old general, sickly, perhaps, aloof, or just the old bridge maven, analyzing his options, playing the possum, keeping his cards close to the vest. The great historian Evan Thomas will be here to share secrets from his latest book, But first, I'm joined from our Washington studios by my co-host, Adam Belmar, co-founder of the website polyoptics.com. Adam, of course, was production chief in the George W. Bush administration, the same role I played in the Clinton White House. Adam, it is great to be with you. It's great to be back here on Polyoptics on POTUS, Josh. And I have to tell you, I'm feeling just a little bit silly today. Why? Well, you know, the fiscal cliff and all of its attendant media and attention in Washington, D.C. has got me thinking like a kid who watched too much television and believes that it might just be a King's Dominion roller coaster ride that's not suitable for your parents when it comes online next year. Why is that? Well, I just think that it's one of those stand-up roller coasters that's in for a good ride, but once you're done, you won't want to ride it again. And as far as the television narrative, I have strongly believed that this is pretty much your standard hour-long sitcom. Others have called it a three-part or a three-act play. I feel like we know, I've seen this episode before, it's too formulaic. Everybody's pushing out, going back to their base. Nobody wants to be seen in the optical sense of following the president. And yet, here we are in campaign mode, and I just think that the last five minutes of this show is going to wrap it up, and it won't be a cliffhanger going into 2013. But it's a it's campaign mode and sort of like the independent film genre, because Air Force One is not being used to a great extent. They're not going far beyond the beltway. They seem to be staying within a Marine One ride of, of the ellipse. Uh, to President Obama later this week uh, did a stop in a family living room to talk about the, the implication of the fiscal cliff for them around the kitchen table, literally. He's gone to a toy fact to a factory in central Pennsylvania this week. Yeah, the toy factory was a nice touch. All sort of these sort of uh, muted events that, that are, are, take such a back seat to the to the drama and groundswell and pomp and circumstance that you worked on the Romney campaign and, of course, the Obama campaign throughout the summer. We're, we're very much in sort of independent genre. Well, I, I think that the president is pursuing a good strategy. Lord knows that on a week in Washington where the big news was that he and Speaker Boehner actually spoke by telephone, not so optically appealing. And yet, 
you do have, when you read the tea leaves, the caucus showing signs of support in their meeting with the speaker. He seems to be more empowered than ever before to cut a deal when the time comes. But when I when I talk about that kid who watched too much television, I know the main characters have got to stick around to next season. Nobody's going to be able to kill off our main character or do away with the bits of drama that keep us coming back week after week. And I really, really believe the president of the United States is going to use the capital that he earned in the election and show some leadership. He's ready to give. He's also ready to take. And I think that by the time Christmas comes around, there won't be any sympathy for people who get stuck here doing the homework that they should have done before it was time to go on vacation. I couldn't agree more, Adam. I mean, if there has to be there has to be fodder to keep uh, the news shows churning, the front pages filled, even having Doug Mills and Steve Crowley making their pictures both on Capitol. You know who's grousing the most? Who? All of my friends at the White House, the folks who work yeah. for uh, Waka, the folks who are lighting directors and political reporters. Every one of them has been looking forward to some time off with family and friends. Lord knows some of them want to propose to their loved ones, their significant others. And here they are trying to figure out how they can make it out of the city in time to get a few packages opened under the tree on Christmas morning or the night before. And that just may not be a reality. Well, Adam, one person who is making it to the city for a rare visit stateside is my dear friend, Kathy Roth Duque the CEO of Blue Star Families, uh, a Marine Corps wife, a woman that I learned advance with uh, going back to 1988. I don't know, Kathy, if you worked in in 84 too. I did. But uh, suffice to say, Kathy and I really lived a parallel life together in the 88 and 92 campaigns, working for the late Senator Paul Simon to begin with, and then into the White House. And we were both part of the full-time White House staff. And... uh, while my life, Adam, as you know, took me out of the White House after five or six years uh, into a brief stay in Hollywood, uh, Kathy took a very different track, a track that has brought her from 1600 Pennsylvania to right now Stuttgart, Germany. And please share with our listeners how you possibly made that lump because it's not a, uh, a direct flight from Dulles to Stuttgart, is it? It's, it's not a common path, it's true, but... Uh uh, it's been an exciting journey, and uh, as Josh knows, you know we actually both knew my husband because he was one of those Marine One co-pilots. Um, so you meet people where you work often, don't you? Yeah. And uh, in in our case, I married someone who I fell in love with. His job wasn't that different from mine, and I, I didn't really understand the degree to to which it would be different, even after we got married in 1997, because uh, we were in that long, happy period of relative peace. It really wasn't until the war broke out that I realized what it meant to serve in the military. In How did country. that love story start between the White House advance woman and the M- Marine One pilot? Uh, well, we uh, we uh, met on a trip in uh, the Philippines, end of World War II. Uh, w- w- Corregidor. Corregidor. Were you out there? I was on that yes, great yes, trip. Greg did the Corregidor uh, flights, and uh, uh, I was doing the bilaterals in Manila. And there was a White ha- there was a uh, Marine Corps ball at the U.S. Embassy in Manila. That was our first date we met there. Staying at the fabulous uh, Manila, Manila Hotel, Hotel. <laughs> where General Douglas MacArthur had his headquarters for a, so long. A historic place. If you meet a handsome Marine at a ball at the U.S. Embassy in Manila, dance all night, you got to marry him. You're not going to get a better story than that. Where has it led since then? And since then, we've lived in uh, Okinawa, Japan, San Diego, uh, London, 
D.C., North Carolina, South Carolina, uh, now Germany. My husband's deployed to this war three times. Um, and uh, through the course of it, I learned about a different kind of service. We served the government. We were interested in our government, and we served in politics. But I learned the kind of service that comes from, from military service. I, uh, I have to say that just hearing that love story uh, makes me realize how it is a story that gets retold. I have a close friend who was in the advance office in the Bush White House who married an HMX-1 pilot <laughs> and uh, another close friend who uh, ended up with the pilot of uh, Air Force One. Well. And some of these travels uh, do make for incredibly romantic uh uh, interludes, but really, you're an amazing professional who's done so much—a writer, a lawyer, obviously a woman who's who's deeply involved in politics. But your passion has been to share what you've learned and help sort of provide a, a framework for common ground. Talk to us about your books. Mm-hmm. You're an accomplished author who's really, you know, been able to get best-selling work out there because it resonates with people and it reminds us about our service and what common ground should be. You know, I, I first started um, writing because I was having a similar conversation with so many friends. It was very, uh, you know, uh, Josh and I grew up, and I'm sure you did too, in a world where people are involved in ideas. We want to be part of shaping opinions. We want to be part of making decisions. And I realized at a certain point that I knew about 100 people who were doing that in uh, 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 think tanks and at universities as news producers or in government and they knew only one person in the military. And that one person was my husband, and the only reason they knew him was because I happened to marry him. And knowing him changed their preconceptions about who it was that served. And it, it actually really concerned me, because I thought if the, if the shapers and deciders don't know what the doers do, how well can we really lead this military that we're supposed to as civilians control? And, and I felt like, you know, I needed to, to start telling that story. And by the way, I was no different. When I married my husband, I had gone to, I had, had a graduate degree in international affairs, and I didn't know we had four different military services and what they did, and I didn't know the difference between officers and enlisted. It's kind of crazy. What was the premise of AWOL, uh, the unexcused absence of America's upper classes from military services? Kathy, I'm a Swarthmore graduate. You're a Bryn Mawr graduate. Yes. I'm not sure how many uh, Swarthmore or Bryn Mawr graduates there are either serving in the military or as spouses. Did you ever meet anyone in the military before you went to work for the White House? Not, I mean, not many. Adam, right? I mean, we we did not have a lot of interaction with people in uniform. No, not not in my in my early uh, youth. But I will say that uh, at my time at ABC News, specifically at Good Morning America around 9-11 mm-hmm. and in the years after that, um, my appreciation for uh, military families and the sacrifice that they go through as their loved ones serve our nation uh, grew profoundly because those stories and that disconnect that Kathy speaks about in, in, in AWOL, the unexcused absence of America's upper class, is something that, uh, that I, I came to understand and appreciate through personal relationships. Yeah, I appreciate that. Um, you know, I have a real passion for, for government and politics. All of us do. That's why we got involved in this business. And what's behind all of it is how should we live? You know, How do we as free people get together and create a society that works? And what the reason I wrote AWOL is because intrinsic to our self-government 
is our ability to understand our military and to direct it. It's the most consequential thing a country does is send people to, to war, to send people into danger, to act in the world with might. And uh, the, the, the founders knew that. And when you have this, this unnatural disconnect, which we've had over the last 35 years, but was never part of our country's history, we go into rocky territory. It's morally suspect for, for how we actually govern our military, and those are, after all, real live people who we're putting in harm's way. But as a whole country, it puts us at risk for whether we're making strong decisions or not. So I, I just think that healing this divide is, is central to the soul of our country. So Greg goes from a pilot based at Quantico. Share with us some of the experiences that you can talk about of his command and his war fighting over the past 10 years. And then in parallel, what do you as a spouse and your fellow spouses do to say, we need to band together to become more of a community, to have more of a voice to create Blue Star families? It's a, it's a great question, Josh. You know, my first real experience of being a military spouse, even though we had moved to Japan, even though we had moved around, my first real experience was when we invaded Iraq. Because my husband first left to start planning the war in Iraq when my second son, Charlie, was about uh, five days old. He was a C-section, and I, I got to stay home alone with him and my toddler. Um, I didn't know what Greg was going for then, <clears throat> but uh, about seven or eight months later, he deployed to the Ku- uh, Kuwait border with Iraq. We really thought that this was a show of force that meant that, that would lead uh, Saddam Hussein to stepping down. It was not going to war for me. And then, uh, And then on March 19th, which happens to be my birthday, my husband, with the invading forces of uh, the Marine Corps, walked, put, put on a chemical biological weapons suit and walked from safety in Kuwait into Afghanistan, 100% at that point expecting to have chemical biological weapons used against him. Uh, he had a baby and a toddler at home, a wife. We were living in La Jolla, California. He didn't actually have to do it. We have a volunteer force, and my husband was close enough to retirement age that we could have just put our papers in. But he voluntarily walked into that terrible experience, slept on the ground, was close to the the fight the whole way, um, no knowledge of what was going to happen. And it blew me away because I just could not imagine being in that position myself. Or the 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 vast gulf between me and so many of my friends. Some of one of our friends said to me at the time when I was talking to her, telling her this story. She said, "He loves that shit," <laughs> and uh, it just drove me crazy because it goes to show the the distance between in the civilian world you do things because you love it, you bungee jump because it's exciting and crazy. My husband didn't love that. Did he want to be home in La Jolla with us? Yeah, actually, he did. He just he had a sense of responsibility to the people next to him. He felt he needed to do it because he had made a commitment, and it's coming from a very different place. Um, so that that was one of my first experiences in North Carolina. He when I was we were living in North Carolina, he deployed to um, lead assault squadrons in Iraq uh, because he was the most experienced pilot. He flew almost every single mission. They they did 18-hour days, seven days a week for seven months, mostly at night because it's safer from uh, rocket-propelled grenades, but it's much worse visibility at night. Um, Picking up soldiers who are wounded from battle, taking them, uh, bringing reinforcements in, very close air support, only the Marine Corps goes that close to the battle in helicopters, interdicting high-value targets, as they say. Um, 
it's a crazy thing to have someone you love doing something so dangerous, and you have to find God, frankly. I mean, there are no uh, atheists in, in, in trenches, and there's no atheists in the home front either, because there's nothing material that makes sense about doing this. You have to find non-material values that lead you to think this makes sense for you to do to your, for, for your family. Ideas about the importance of being part of a country and importance of, um, of trusting in the, the uh, future, really. Um, so that's, that's quite a journey. Kathy, the, the optics, and this feels incongruous with you know, our discussion of military service and prosecuting the campaigns that your husband has been a part of, but for the country, the appreciation of what that sacrifice represents and the understanding uh, that the ultimate sacrifice is, is made all too often uh, in Afghanistan and Iraq. I wonder how, until 2008, uh, a group like Blue Star Families wasn't in existence. Obviously, many precursors to it in a small, organic way, unit by unit. How did this come to be, and was this something that, uh, that, that you uh, believe has been long overdue and being put into place? Long overdue and a huge pent-up need for it. A group of us started in 2008, feeling like it's diff- This is our, the, the the war is difficult, but it's actually more difficult than it needs to be. There are disconnects that we have with the country that are solvable and connectable, and there are insights and expertise we have from living it that we're not able to co- um, contribute because there is no place at the table for the people who are living the experience. Active duty can't participate. They, you know, They're they busy. give up. Yeah, and they sign up. They, they aren't allowed to advocate, but your family is. We, we have the window, and we know what it is, and we also know the effects on ourselves and our children. The ultimate sacrifice, as you mentioned, actually isn't paid most often in Iraq and Afghanistan. We lose more soldiers to suicide than we do to combat. I mean, these are the kinds of stories we're in a position to tell and help solve because we're so close to them. But I think probably my guess is is that the Internet and the um, sophistication of it at 2008 made this possible. We are so spread out. I actually live in Stuttgart, Germany now because my husband got reassigned there. I didn't have to stop doing Blue Star Families because of the strength of social networking and and telecommuting and Skype and and those kinds of things. And so we started the group in, in 2008, incorporated in 2009, got our 501c3 in October of that year. We grew a thousand percent every year for the first couple of years. We're growing at least a hundred percent now. It's much bigger than we ever expected to be. We have over half a million people who take part in our programs now. We're three and a half years old, Um, and I think it's because there was an enormous hunger for an ability for uh, us to have a seat at the table. Whether you're talking about a place like Paris Island, South Carolina, or uh, Tampa, Florida, the home of of, uh, Southcom or Centcom. Uh, obviously, the realities of what base communities are was brought home to so many people over uh, the last month or so with the stories of General Petraeus, General Allen, uh, Paula Broadwell, and the Kelly sisters. But before we get to that, because I am kind of fascinated in your take on that, and I think you appropriately say, look, if we paid as much attention to the actual uh, situation facing hundreds of thousands of military families as we did uh, this little triangle, uh, we'd, we'd actually be able to solve our problems. So before we get to that, mm-hmm. tell us what base communities are like and what the, you, you mentioned the suicide problem. What are the things that make them uh, joyous and what are, the, what are the challenges of them? 
there's an enormous upside to base communities and have a lot to do with why we stayed in the military as a family. Um, my children grew up, they're 10 and 14 now, but my children grew up uh, coming home from school, getting a snack, running outside to play with friends, being gone for hours in and outside of other people's houses. It's the largest gated community you can imagine with people holding uh, submachine guns before you can get in. So they're very safe. They uh, tend to have families living in every single house. Usually the spouses are at home. Maybe they don't want to be, but it's hard to keep a job going. We have 26% unemployment rate for military spouses. But that makes a very safe community, the kind of community where you can say if you're having a very difficult time in the middle of a deployment to your neighbor who you don't know well, and I've, and I've done this, you know, I, I'm, I, I just need a break. Can you watch my kids? I've got to leave for, for, for 45 minutes. And your neighbor whose house you've never been in, but you trust him, because you're part of the shared community service, says, I've got them, go. And, and that's a beautiful thing to be part of um, and worth keeping. The, the, the other side of it, the, the suicide and some of the other um, challenges we face, their root cause is isolation. Only 27% of military families live on bases. Many don't want to, but there just isn't the stock to do it. Moving around, having the experiences that are so different from the larger community can create a great deal of isolation, and almost all of our um, keenest problems come from that. That's very interesting. Uh, I know that uh, the military is doing a lot of uh, research and perhaps not spending enough uh, resources uh, to meet this emergent problem. And as you point out, it, it's not uh, something that, that is unknown to military families, but it is emergent. It's growing uh, a great deal. Um, you know, Josh mentioned uh, a minute ago uh, the current uh, scandal du jour, which still to some extent continues to surround uh, General Petraeus. Uh, as somebody who's been involved in White House political activities, somebody who's uh, uh, an advocate for families involved in military service, someone who's actually served in, in OSD, the Office of the Secretary of Defense, what is your take on what this does for the American people's appreciation for leadership when we see two leading generals caught up in something that on its face is so tawdry. The thing I would love for people to take away is that these are people. The American public likes to think about those who serve in the military as heroes or victims. And the truth is, is that we're neither. <clears throat> like the rest of the country, we're flawed people who are trying to do, in many cases trying to do our best and sometimes failing. The work that we're involved in, in the best cases, elevates us and gives us a mission. And that's something for all of us to care about, the idea that service gives you purpose and ties you to something larger than yourself. But the, what I, I hope it helps us to see is that these are not gods or semi-gods or even extraordinarily great people. They, they, um, they, they serve a role that we all need to be engaged with in a way. And I don't want us to have to pay the ransom of admiring them too much in exchange from not, for not really having to know or care about the details. Um, so safe to say that when this happened, it wasn't too surprising? I, I don't think, I, I, I did not find it surprising. I found it sad, but not surprising. One of the things that you worked on when you were uh, serving in the Pentagon were issues relating to uh, defense reform. Uh, specifically uh, installations and the like. You talk about the disconnect in your book of uh, America's upper class from military service and how it hurts the country. Um, do you see a disconnect 
from the way we do our recruiting and where our bases are? Is there something systemic about uh, the way we have uh, put together our military bases and installations that continues to perpetuate this disconnect? Adam, I appreciate that you read the book and you know all these things about me. That's a, it's an impressive interview with the two of you. Uh, the, uh, it does. We made a decision when we went to an all-volunteer force that we would ask the children of people who already serve and people who come from communities where a lot of people already serve to serve in the military. Right. It's cheapest and it's easiest. And if your job is sourcing widgets, it makes sense to get them as cheaply and easily as possible. I don't blame the military for making those choices. I think our political leaders have to look and say, do we need a military? If so, who should serve? If it doesn't equally fall on the plate of all of us to consider this option, why not? What does that mean? I think we need to be asking people from all walks of life um, for this issue. And if I could also follow up on the outsourcing issue, that that was a very important experience for me too, um, because I don't actually want our DOD to solve all problems. Um, some of these problems that stem from isolation, you know, I, I actually want the 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 Pentagon to train and equip my husband and get him home from war safe. But we don't serve. We military families don't serve the Pentagon. We serve America. I, I want to get the larger society involved in helping us meet some of the needs we have. I think they can do it better, just like I wanted to outsource housing because there are people who are in the housing business do it better than DOD. I want to outsource some of these um, these programs that can help build family strength because I think those are the experts, and I don't think we need to make DOD the expert in that sort of thing. You know, Josh, this is something that uh, came to the fore even at the beginning of Operation uh, Iraqi Freedom when we started to learn names like KBR and Halliburton and uh, some of the larger companies that were Blackwater and others who were handling outsourced security and feeding the troops and base security. Uh, but it does make me think, Kathy, that uh, there's a real need on the part of our political leadership to have some personal connection. It's not just who you know. There's great overwhelming number of folks who lead our country in the civilian and political ranks never served. Never served and never knew anyone who served. Now, everyone can't serve. We need 5% of our 18 to 24-year-olds to serve. But if they were 5% from all, you know, every walk of life, then they would at least have someone they cared about. You know, when, when someone can think about my husband and think about me because they know us and my kids, it gives them a context for caring. And, and that's why I think that it really, we can accomplish so much by by bringing this everywhere. I, I also think we need to, in our colleges, we need to just bring into the canon what it is our military is, what they do, and what their structure is. You got to know who Helen Frankenthaler is to be an educated East Coast, you know, Swarthmore, Bryn Mawr graduate. Why not know what our military is? But as much as, uh, as, much as I love Kathy Roth and Adam Belmar, my KBR K rations uh, and and the and the canteen that they would set up in the bases that I visited when I was doing advance for the president. Uh, Kathy, not a big problem anymore, right? I mean, the war in Iraq is over. The war in Afghanistan is drawing down. All of our troops can come home, right? Well, wrong. It's it's actually the opposite. There's no peace dividend for Americans' military families. The world continues to be a very dangerous place. We have troops, 68,000 in Afghanistan still, but we have uh, tens of thousands more throughout uh, Asia, Europe. We have, um, we're, we're increasing the troop presence in Japan and in, around, and in other places in Asia and in Korea. 
because of some of the activities and, and concerns there. And we're increasing these activities in a way that doesn't involve families. We're going to be sending uh, Marines on regular two-year unaccompanied deployments, for instance. The Army is going to be going to a forward rotational um, program where in garrison, family members will be leaving for six months at a time. And they'll be leaving with fewer resources. They'll be leaving without combat pay, without tax-free income. Um, so in some ways, that will put more stresses on family. It's That's not transparent to the rest of society. But an important story for me to tell now is we still need you. Kathy, I think for me, one of the most profound uh, takeaways from having served in the White House was being on hand as the commander-in-chief interacts with our troops, whether it is a visit to the front lines in Iraq or uh, a base of returning soldiers um, in Fayetteville, North Carolina, or with the, the, uh, the folks at Fort Campbell before they push out. The appreciation and acknowledgement of the commander-in-chief and the relationship that exists between each commander-in-chief and the, the men and women of the military services is so profoundly important. That trust that transcends politics and speaks to the best of what America is. You've seen it uh, throughout administrations. Will you just share with us here as we sort of conclude on polyoptics here on SiriusXM with you what, uh, what you've seen about how that affects the entire country, the, the relationship between a president and the military? It's tremendously important. And let me start with the military. And and let me mention military children. Two and a half million American kids have sent a parent to war over the past 11 years. We we know very little about how this affects them, but it's a reality of theirs that's separate from any others. We know one of the things that makes it most sustainable for them is believing that their parent is doing something important. When the president or when the first lady, this first lady recently hosted a bunch of military kids to the White House to look at Christmas decorations, that can erase so much of the trauma because they believe it matters. It means, believes there you can do something hard if it matters. It's and and that's what the connection means. I think that the presidents are as helped and as uh, elevated by their connection to the troops as uh, as the troops are the other way around. It's very good for the country. Josh, that has to be your experience as well. Well, that's right. I mean, I remember, and Kathy will too, and you will too, Adam. That. Sometime around uh, middle, late December, uh, the boss would uh, spend an hour or so making specific calls to troops and bases and forward deployments around the world. And and Kathy and I remember President Clinton doing it. You did it with President Bush, and President Obama continues that tradition. And on occasion, we also know when a president will clandestinely leave Andrews Air Force Base, fly through the night, and show up in the morning uh, to share a Christmas meal with the troops. Uh, and it is incredibly moving, and we'll talk. And you know, I saw that most recently, Adam, watching uh, Steven Spielberg's Lincoln that uh, last week, and we'll talk about that with Evan Thomas in the next segment. But uh, the connection between the commander in chief and the troops in the field and the families at home has got to be strong and indelible. And only then will we begin to truly understand the sacrifices made, not only by the people in uniform but the spouses and the kids and the families back home and their extended families. Uh, and I did want to tie this back to our previous work together, Josh. Um, it, at the Christmas parties at the White House right now, there's a program the Blue Star Families runs together with the First Ladies Joining Forces called Operation Honor Corps. It's something that all of your listeners right now can take part of. It's uh, a pledge to do community service in honor of the service of military families. There's a card you can fill up online, but we also do it physically at the White House. In honor of your service, I pledge to do blank 
mentor a child, clean up a park, the, cho- the, the idea of your choice, and then you sign your name online, you put your, your email in, you come back and tell us when you've done the pledge. We're up to 22 million hours pledged now of community service, and it's a way for us to all do some. You can see all the cards up on the walls at the White House, and it's a, after the, the Christmas parties are done, those cards will go to military families, to wounded vets around the world. What a great program, Patriotism Begetting Patriotism. Kathy Roth, you Kath, thanks for being with us on Polyoptics. Thank you. So Adam, from the wars in Afghanistan and Iraq back to the Cold War, you know, when Election Day happened on November 6th, and I kept thinking about you and the result that faced Governor Romney, uh, it was clear, clearly the time that we were going to stop watching day-in, day-out coverage of the campaign. And I went up to the Catskills, and as I usually do, this was a weekend when I was going to be up there alone, had a ton of work to do. You were do. looking for a book, weren't you? I was looking for a book, man. <laughs> and I so I went going. on to audible.com and grabbed my iPhone, and I my eye was... Uh, instantly gravitated toward whatever Evan Thomas was going to give us uh, most recently. I spent about a full weekend with the war lovers in the spring. We obviously read the book that uh, both he and Mike Allen worked on on the, oh, yeah. e- on the e-book. But I, I p- picked up Ike's Bluff, and I woke up on a Saturday morning about 6 in the morning, and I had my long list of things to do. But by 4 the next morning, I'd not only finished this long list and then some, but I was transported from uh, 1953 to 1961 and relived a period of our history, which I got to be honest with you, Adam, you know, you, we studied the World War II very intensely. We think about the Kennedy years a lot. Robert Caro has brought the Johnson years back to life. But I was hungry to to understand again what made Eisenhower's presidency so special uh, and so interesting. It, it's easily dismissed, this aloof old general after his great service in World War II. He's, he's an easy election in 1953, but uh, he's got a huge amount of work to do in terms of avoiding war and avoiding the use of the catastrophic weapons that came from World War II. And what Evan Thomas has done with Ike's Bluff is basically bring us through those eight years and show that how this old general, who is so easily dismissed, was in fact perhaps using all of the skills acquired in the game of bridge, all the skills throughout a career in the military, not telling anyone the, the hand he, that he had, and combating not just uh, aggression from uh, the Soviet Union, but an a uncertain footing of his generals in the Pentagon and where the CIA was going. So had an incredible weekend with Evan Thomas's writing and the words coming through my ears. Evan, welcome back to Polyoptics. Great Hi. book. Thank, thank you, you so thank much. Thank you. Thank really, you. Really appreciate you saying all that. I really do. I don't think we paid him to say that either. <laughs> <laughs> keep, keep talking. This is great. The, the, the <laughs> anecdotes in this book and, and the way that you sort of uh, bring out the the personality and the and the characteristics of uh, the 34th president. Uh, amazing stuff. I mean, I imagine that this is a lifelong passion for you to have been researching this or, or thinking about it, or was this something that you just set your mind to and off you went to research this book and churn it? Well, a couple of things. I grew up in the 1950s, scared to death of nuclear war, so I have a I had a real interest in the period. Uh, you know, we think of the 50s as being dull and safe. Didn't feel that way to a little kid living in Long Island who would hear the air raid practice sirens and think that the nuclear Armageddon was on its way. And I think a lot of, I have a lot of company uh, of people who grew up in that decade who remember it fearfully. 
So that interested me. Ike, I had I had been sort of a I'd written a book about Bobby Kennedy, and I probably had drunk the Kool Aid from the Kennedys that uh, Ike was a boring golfer, but uh, he wasn't. He was a crafty guy, and uh, thank goodness he was because that was actually you know it was a tense time, and we had a lot of conflicts. And Ike, Ike, the thing that got me going on this was I heard that. Uh, from somebody who knew General Goodpaster. General Goodpaster was Ike's closest aide, his staff secretary. Staff secretary. Yeah, the guy that that Ike would confide in and talk to his top secret stuff about. And Goodpaster told a friend of mine some years ago that Ike never told him whether or when he would use nuclear weapons. And I started thinking about this, the incredible responsibility. I mean, presidents, everybody knows presidents have responsibility, but 1950s, this is the first time a president's ever had, or anybody, and history has had the power to destroy the world or wreck civilization because we got this new weapons. And there's a lot of uncertainty whether we're going to use them or not. The chairman of the Joint Chiefs want to use small nuclear weapons in uh, Vietnam and Korea and against Red China and Berlin. Uh, and Ike threatens with these things, but he never tells anybody whether he's going to use them. And I just that just got me. What is that like to have that responsibility? Now, you know, he's used to responsibility of uh, World War II. You know, he'd been Supreme Allied Commander, Indeed. but still, but still. Well, we think a little bit about uh, the preconceptions that people have uh, with this president. Uh, uh, you talk about him as someone who, who seemed like a benign figure, uh, but you, you, you come to a place where you realize he's crafty, he can be even cold-blooded, incredibly calculating. This is a guy who used power wisely, but that was a very strategic and thoughtful process that he went through. Well, you know, he learned, uh, you know, because he ran the, the Allies basically in World War II, he got used to dealing with big egos who were Churchill, you know, de Gaulle, Stalin. I mean, some pretty big, uh, uh, big egos. And so he learned to, to sort of handle that and keep his counsel to himself. He was a card player. He was a, such a good poker player. As a young officer, they had to give it up because he, he was taking too much money from his fellow officers. Uh, but he continued to play bridge, and he liked to sort of think ahead. Uh, and so he had this kind of calculating mind. His own son, John, told me, uh, we were talking about the genial, sunny, warm Ike, which everybody saw. And then there was this cold-blooded Ike, and I said, well, you know, like 50-50. And, and, and John, the son, said, no, no, 75% cold-blooded. Mm. That's his own son. Uh, so he's a very calculating guy, and he needs to be. Because, you know, it's, it's a whole new ball game out there. That You look at a map in 1953, and it looks like communism's on the march everywhere. You know, Eastern Europe has just turned red. China's just turned red. Uh, all through Asia, South Asia, South America, Central America. And so what are we going to do about it? Well, uh, you know, some people just want to go home. Fortress America. Uh, we're isolationists. I said, no, 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 we can't do that. I mean, Europe is going to collapse. We're going to lose... China, we're going to lose everything. So we have to stand up. But how? Well, Ike didn't want to fight little wars. There was a chance to fight all sorts of little wars because he, from his experience in the military and his own study of history, knew that little wars turned into big wars, really big wars, and ultimately nuclear wars. So he was determined to keep us out of little wars. But how do you do that? Well, you bluff. You threaten to have the really big one. He bluffed with nuclear weapons, and he did it again and again. He did it in the Middle East. He did it, I said, with China and Vietnam and Korea, there's crisis after crisis, uh, never quite telling anybody what he's up to, 
the historians are still, a lot of them still scratching their heads about what he really was up to because he did hide the ball pretty well. But I think, you know, and I, I've, I'm not the first person to f- figure this out. There have been people who have come before me, a guy named Campbell Craig wrote a very interesting doctoral thesis at Yale looking at this. And, you know, even way back to Fred Greenstein, uh, Princeton professor who first yeah. discovered all this in the early 1980s. So I'm not the first person to figure this out. Yeah, but very few people, uh, I think only one, uh, Evan Thomas, has put it in the context of uh, how you can be cold and ruthless in the game of bridge and how that's a metaphor for the way you conduct yourself uh, in the Oval Office. So, Evan, paint this picture between Ike and his personal secretary and his group of guys who would get together either in the executive mansion or down at Augusta or in Texas and tell us how Ike lived his off-hours life with these guys and how ruthless he could be with cards in his hand. <laughs> well, he, one thing, he was a golf player. He played 800 rounds of golf. Now, that's an amazing statistic. 800 rounds. While he was in, in office. While he was in office. 200 times in uh, Georgia, Augusta. He learned how to pace himself, you know, and, and to relax. And he could, probably couldn't get away with it today, but in those days you could. Uh, so he And he played a lot of cards. He played a lot of bridge. During the height of of the Hungary-Suez crisis, which was a dramatic time in 1956, right before the election. He's several days away from the election. The Soviets have invaded Hungary, and there's a war going on in the Middle East. Ike spends the day playing bridge with his rich buddies and watching the Navy-Notre Dame football game. <laughs> As the White House stewards set the card table. Set, set the card table. And, I mean, it's just, it couldn't happen today. Who are these buddies? And they're, they're pretty consistent, aren't they? They're rich millionaires, basically. Uh, corporate titans. A uh, guy who ran the Herald Tribune, which is a much missed, actually, moderate Republican paper. Uh, guy ran Coca-Cola, guy ran a liquor company. You know, they're sort of 1950s uh, corporate guys that he met uh, at men's clubs, really. And they all have their private planes, and they, they fly they in fly, at his call. Yeah, his secretary would call him up, get on Danny, we're going to play some bridge. And they had their private planes and got there. Again, today, you know, we'd all be writing stories about how outrageous it is he's hanging around with these millionaires. You point out how uh, the president managed his own image, diminishing his intellect or role in a self-deprecating way that wouldn't be feasible right. in, for a recent president. And and you also talk about his uh, his great self-control, just willing himself, ordering himself almost militarily, going to stop smoking. Yeah, <laughs> he gave himself an order to quit. Uh, I mean, he, again, very hard to do today. It's a whole different era today. People show off today. I show off. I'm trying to be a brand here. I'm on radio trying to sell my books. You know, I want people to know my name. In the 1950s, it was a more modest era. It was a more low-key style of leadership. And, and, and Eisenhower said that he liked being underestimated. It was useful. He disguised his intelligence and his ambition. Worked pretty well in World War II when you're dealing with de Gaulle or Stalin or Churchill. And uh, so, and, 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 and of course, the press enabled them. They were even lazier then than they are today. <laughs> and they didn't really inquire that hard. And, and they people were, say, I bash the press. Yeah. <laughs> but but they were pretty lazy. You know, they would have drinks together. It was all kind of cozy, and we're all right. friends. And, and they protected Ike. Not not all of them, but, but, but a lot of them. And, and they also protected him from what you demonstrate so clearly in Ike's Bluff, a relationship between Mamie and his doctor and his own health. Yeah. Tell us all about that. Yeah, I mean, I, I, there's a filing cabinet full of stuff at the Eisenhower Library in Abilene, which people just, just haven't used. I'm not quite sure why. Anyway, his doctor kept a daily diary. Why? Because Ike had a heart attack in 1955 mm-hmm. and high blood pressure, and they were afraid he was going to pop a cork. 
if he got too many, and I should say here, I haven't said yet, he had a huge temper, well disguised, but he had a Vesuvian temper. Uh, you didn't see it in public, but his age sure saw it. And so his doctors were afraid, oh my God, he's going to cork off here. So his doctor, Snyder, uh, Howard Snyder, kept a daily diary of his mood, which is enormously useful to me because Ike wasn't going to be talking about his mood to anybody except to his doctor. And you can see it go up. And now he's human. You know, he starts by the end of his presidency, he's taking a little extra sleeping pill when he really shouldn't. And those second sli- all those in those days, second all was, you know, that had barbiturates and right. you got a hangover. And so it's actually not so great. And he would have an extra drink or two a couple of times in his diary, in his doctor's diary. It quotes the president saying, OK, let's get drunk. <laughs> you know, I, I don't know what they do over at the Obama White Tell House, us about but I don't, I don't think they do that. Tell, I mean, it sounds like at the end of his term, he was he was almost willing that the end of the term to come and his visit with the royal family in Britain. Well, he, you know, a lot of people, presidents like to go abroad because you get a lot of cheers and stuff. But so he goes abroad and, and gets the crowds. But then he's having uh, dinner and drinks. And uh, the drink menu is just unbelievable. They have like three gin and tonics to start and uh, two glasses of wine and three glasses of port and brandy and cigars. They must have just been reeling at the end of it. And the Brits have an enormous capacity to drink generally and have, you know, cocktails before lunch and all that. But But still... Uh, and he, you know, they, in 1950s too, I guess people did socially drink more, but man, they, they drank a lot. You know, when, <clears throat> when we think about uh, some of the, the moments from his presidency that, that stand out for people who aren't historians, the, the downing of the American U-2 spy plane is one of them, but you take us behind the scenes and to the detente between uh, Eisenhower and Khrushchev, and tell us a little bit about that relationship. Yeah, well, I mean, it was a... Khrushchev is a scary guy, blustering. You know that famous line, "We will bury you." I gather it's a sort of a mistranslation from the Russian, but but still, I mean, he's always talking about we're, we're cranking out rockets like sausages and and very threatening with visitors, uh, boasting about these rockets that actually they didn't really have, uh, but very scary. And uh, Ike's got to manage this kind of seems seems like a crazy guy, uh, and he wants to have detente. You, you can't you can't let Khrushchev bully you, but on the other hand. You can't just confront him all the time. So Ike is trying to manage this relationship. And he wants to have a summit meeting in Paris in 1960 at the end of his presidency. But at the same time, he wants good intelligence on the Russians. And we have this secret plane nobody knows about, the U-2, a spy plane flying overhead. And the thing gets shot down two weeks before the summit. And it's the end of the summit meeting. And it's the end of Ike's hope for detente. And it's actually the beginning of the most dangerous period right. in the Cold War. That's, that's a really dangerous period, 60 to about 62, to the Cuban Missile Crisis. Everybody remembers that. That was kind of the climax of this period. Damn near got us all killed. Well, it starts with a shoot down of the U-2. And what happened there was that Ike was too trusting of his own CIA. He liked the CIA. Remember, this is the guy who wants to stay out of wars. So he uses the CIA to do a lot of covert action, coup d'etats, that kind of stuff, that at the time looked good. Guatemala and Iran seemed pretty good in 1953, 1954. Not so good today. But the CIA is doing this stuff behind the scenes. And one thing they're doing is they're flying this spy plane over Russia. And it's great because we can see down and to see whether the Russians have these rockets or not. And they don't, really. But the head of the program running this, Richard Bissell, lies to uh, Ike and doesn't tell him that the Soviets have built these anti-aircraft missiles that can reach the U-2. The sea covers it up, and Ike is not told, and he authorizes a mission over Russia in May Day 1960, and boom. It's kind of hard to boom. be 
backing up bluffs when you don't have the the intelligence to know when you you really are way outside the risk envelope. Yes, I mean that's an important thing that Ike pretty much knew. But well, I mean, I have to I have to qualify that we had no good human intelligence in the Soviet Union, no good spies. We had a couple of walk-ins, but basically in the fifties we were blind, except for this airplane that flew overhead, and it couldn't see everything. But it would follow rail lines, and they just weren't finding ICBMs. Khrushchev was boasting about it, but the CIA wasn't finding them. That helped Ike. Basically, I would say it's not so much bluff, but call Russia's bluff to find out that they, because he, he knew they had a weak hand. He loved his scientists like Edwin Land developing that, that camera. He did. He was very, he's a tech guy because the military, you know, has to be and he knew weapons and all that. But he called him my scientist and Land, who invented the Polaroid camera, which we, some of you may remember. Uh, you know, they invented this incredible camera that could look down from 60,000 feet. And also Lockheed uh, invented this plane, the U-2, that was an amazing invention and carried us through this dangerous period till we could get satellites up there and spy on them with satellites. Evan, you talk about the relationship between uh, President Eisenhower and what were his former colleagues uh, during mm. World War II, like 31 knot Arleigh Burke <laughs> uh, and the other generals. And you talk and you really end begin and end the book talking about the famous farewell speech and the rise yeah. of the military-industrial complex. What did Eisenhower think uh, the Kennedy administration would ultimately do with all the tools at their disposal and whether they would be as careful uh, and protecting of this yeah. ma- vast killing apparatus that he was able to keep under wraps for so long? Well, it's a mixed picture. I mean, Ike is old and sick at the end, and he doesn't do a great job, I think, with Kennedy of sort of warning him. He does give this famous speech in 1960 and warns everybody, watch out for the military-industrial complex. But he does not do a good job with Jack. He thought Jack Kennedy was a whippersnapper, and he had limited contact with him. He did counsel him during the missile crisis and basically told him to hang in there. Uh, but he did. He could have done a better job educating uh, JFK about this arsenal that had been built. Now, it's complicated because Ike, on the one hand, he reduces military spending. Think about this. In the 1950s, the president reduces military spending. But he does it by cutting the heck out of the army and building up strategic air command and missiles. And that's we've created this unbelievable force uh, to take out the Soviet Union in about two hours' time. And when Kennedy is first briefed on it, it's called the Single Integrated Operating Plan. This is our plan to take out the Soviet unions literally in about two hours' time. Uh, uh, President Kennedy turns to Dean Rusk, the Secretary of State, and he says, and they call us human beings. I mean, he just can't believe what they've built here. Ike's Bluff uh, is the book. Uh, You may know uh, some of the other titles. We've already talked a little bit about the war lovers you know, you have been very good to us here at Polyoptics, Evan Thomas, and we're, we're lucky to have you back. And uh, I, I can just tell our, our listeners that if, if you're thinking about buying this book and you want to get it signed, you just contact Josh King <laughs> in New York, and we'll, we'll do the traffic on this book. Evan Thomas, thanks for being with us here on Polyoptics. Thank you, guys. I really appreciate it. Take care, Evan. See you. That's it for another edition of Polyoptics. You hear us each Saturday on Sirius XM Channel 124, POTUS, Politics of the United States. Missed any previous episode? Find them all on polyoptics.com and follow us on Twitter at Polyoptics. Keep your eyes on the visual, think about how it moves you, and we'll talk about it next week. Thanks for listening. I'm Josh King, and you're on POTUS.